Well, we are continuing our series in 1 Kings, so I'll be reading 1 Kings 9, reading the whole chapter. Um, so I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab some in the foyer. There are plenty available. I'm starting at verse 1. <clears throat> as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they have abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two cities, the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king a 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer. And lower Beth Hodon, and Balath, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, 
who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the millow. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. And so he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Thanks, Josh. All right. Well, it is good to be uh, with you this morning, to be able to uh, open God's Word. Uh, What a a special uh, privilege that is, to be able to do that. And I'm glad that uh, you're here as well to hear it. And uh, for those who might be watching along as well at home, it's glad that you can join us that way. Uh, But uh, let's uh, get into it. Well, uh, this year, for the first time ever for me, uh, I have become a regular viewer of The Block now, um, I've heard that apparently that makes me a blockhead. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but apparently that's the way it goes. So now, if you don't know, that The Block is a reality TV show and it follows uh, couples as they compete against one another to build a house and then to auction it at the end for the highest price. Whoever makes the most from the auction wins. And now, not having any building experience myself... Uh, one of the things I quickly learned was that uh, building projects do not always go to plan. Uh, maybe you've experienced that yourself. And that's definitely the case on this TV show, The Block, where throughout the season, uh, each house is visited by a gentleman whose name is Blue Tape Nate. Blue Tape Nate. There's a picture of him on the screen behind me. And what, who is Blue Tape Nate? Well, his, his job... Uh, is quality assurance. He's a uh, building inspector. And so he's there on the show to make sure all these houses that are being built, that they are built to code, that it follows the correct building standards. Why? Well, that's what you need to do if you want to build a house that'll last. And so if they don't, if he visits the house, these contestants, and there are things that aren't right... Well, he gets his blue tape out and he sticks a little bit of blue tape over the blemish. So, yeah, the the paintwork's not done right. Blue tape. The cornices are in shambles. Blue tape. The plaster's not even. Blue tape. And now that way, the the contestants know that something has gone wrong with their building. Something that, if it's left undealt with, 
could put the building project at risk. Now, I wonder, do you ever feel that way when it comes to your own life as a Christian? Uh, That if you had a, a spiritual inspector come through and look about everything about you and about your life, that maybe he'd find lots of places to put blue tape. My Bible reading isn't so regular at the moment. Blue tape. I'm finding it hard to say no to sexual temptation. Blue tape. I keep talking about others behind their backs. Blue tape. As you think about your own uh, spiritual life, would you consider that it is uh, built to standard, uh, built to code, so to speak? Do you even know what, what the standard is, what the standard's meant to be? Or as you look around at your life, do you perhaps see cracks appearing everywhere? Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning in 1 Kings chapter 9, that encourages us to take a closer look at our lives to see whether this might be the case. And it uses Solomon's building project to help us get there. Now, thus far, if you've been following with us the story of 1 Kings, well, that story has really, in effect, been the story of the building of the kingdom of God. Yeah, the people of Israel... God's special people, they have come a long, long way since uh, being freed from Egypt. Okay, they've spent 40 years in the desert wilderness. They've now entered the promised land. And most recently, they've had a, a series of kings over them for the first time in their uh, people's history. They First, they had the prophet Samuel, and then they transitioned to kings. They had King Saul and then King David. And from the time of King David, while the kingdom of God as a whole has been steadily on the rise, the the building project has been going really well. But nowhere has it shone brighter than over the early years of King Solomon's reign, which we've been looking at these past few weeks in this series, particularly 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, ever since God appeared to Solomon and uh, he asked God for wisdom, well, things have been going really well as a whole. The, the building of God's kingdom is going swimmingly. And really, it's no wonder because when God, uh, because of what God promised Solomon when he first gave his request for wisdom. Okay, here's, I'm going to read for you. This is back in 1 Kings chapter 3. This is what God said to Solomon after his request in verse 12. He said, Behold, now I do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been seen before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Now, that's exactly what's been happening in the time since then. And the way we see it, I think, most clearly is in the building projects that Solomon has undertaken. Okay, in chapters 5 to 6, what did he do? He built the temple of the Lord. And in early uh, early part of chapter 7, he gets to build his own palace as well. Okay, so a house for, for God and a house for him, the king. Now, these were the, the clearest signs that God was blessing Solomon as he went about building the kingdom of God on earth. 
The building project is going well. And so as we reach uh, today's passage, chapter 9, well, a significant amount of time has now passed from that first request when Solomon first asked for wisdom. Okay, Now we're talking about 20 years have passed. And yet the building of God's kingdom continues. The temple and, and the palace, sure, they're complete, but there's still more to build. And so in chapter 9, this is what we see play out as God lays down for Solomon and for the people his building standards. Okay, the code, God gives to them the code by which they must live if they are to build God's kingdom the right way with no blemishes. And now this is what we see, particularly in the first nine verses of this chapter, chapter nine. And it comes about as a result, like we said, of God's second appearance to Solomon. The first one back in chapter three when he asked for wisdom. Now the second one here in chapter nine. Now what does God say? Well, first, he answers and confirms all that Solomon had asked for in his lengthy prayer of dedication, which we saw in chapter 8 last week. Okay, This is what he says uh, here in chapter 9, verse 3. Here's his answer to Solomon's long prayer. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So God has upheld his end of the promise that he made to his people. It's a promise that began way back in the early chapters of Genesis. And here at the pinnacle of the kingdom, God's saying he continues to remain faithful. Now, that's important because of what happens next. If God has upheld his end of the promise, his end of the bargain, well, then that means now it's the people's turn to uphold their end. And this, it's at this moment that we get God's standard for the building of his kingdom. Okay, here's where we find out how it should be built and what it should look like. And really, there's just two parts to this standard. Okay, they're outlined in verses 4 through 9. First, obedience resulting in blessing. Okay, obedience resulting in blessing, that's the first. The second part, disobedience resulting in curses. And that's it. That's the standard God sets for his kingdom. Obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you'll be cursed. Now here's how he puts it in verse 4. Okay, read along with me. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. 
and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Now, what God's doing here, this is what's called a conditional promise. Hey, the outcome is dependent on what Israel does. And that means that the, the if, the word if, is the most important word in this building standard that God's giving. Solomon and the people have a choice, either to obey God or to disobey him. If they obey him, they will build a kingdom that lasts forever. But if they disobey him by worshipping and following other gods, well, the building will crash and burn. Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. It's up to them which way they will choose. And so as we go through the rest of the chapter, what we see really is an answer to this question. We see the early actions from Solomon in response to God's commands, in response to his building standard. So let's uh, roll in with our uh, blue tape Nate illustration again. Well, let's go through it and let's see how they go. Okay, verses uh, 10 to 28. Let's see. Will Solomon continue to build the kingdom according to God's standard or will he build in opposition to God's standard? Well, let's find out. Now, before we start, it should be said, the immediate past, uh, what has come just before this, it puts things in a very positive light. It perhaps it suggests to us that Solomon will indeed obey or he will build to God's standard. Now, why might we think that? Well, because the previous work on the building project has been done to a very high standard. Okay, Solomon has just built the temple just as God asked. In that way, this has happened over seven long years the temple was built. So in this way, Solomon has displayed a pattern of being obedient to God. And he hasn't just shown that he has been obedient, but also that he wants to keep being obedient into the future. Rather, that that prayer of dedication from chapter 8 that we looked at last week, well, that prayer highlighted his deep devotion to God. Okay, here's what he prayed. Here's uh, something he mentions in the prayer in chapter 8, verse 57. Here's what he says. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Uh, may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. So before God even has given the conditional promise in chapter 9, we see already Solomon's got a deep desire for he and the people to obey God. He wants to be continually building to code, so to speak. So as we enter this period, immediately after God has laid down his conditional promise, well, we get a sense that things bode well for Solomon and for the kingdom. It's a bit like asking a star student, a star pupil, to go and do their homework. right? If they've already shown that they're a good student, you've got to have a lot of trust that they'll continue doing that into the future when you ask them to go and do their homework. Now, to to top it all off, uh, even greater than that, God has now promised 
that he has put his name on his temple forever. Did you catch that when we read it? That that is a permanent promise from God that he will reside with his people forever, permanently. He's going to be there, in other words, to help them build the kingdom to his standard. Now, if you're about to embark on uh, continuing to build the kingdom, what better news could you have than that? That God's going to be with you as you do that. It, it makes it all of that, when you put it together, it makes us say, what could possibly go wrong? Well, then we get to verses 10 to 28. Okay, here's where we get the details of exactly what Solomon gets into building wise. So let's, let's go through it in brief, just quickly. Now, first up, uh, we get a record of Solomon's dealings with a foreign king named Hiram. Now, he's the king of a neighboring country called Tyre. Uh, they first connected back in chapter 5. Okay, now, these dealings that uh, Solomon has with this king, it leads to wealth and blessing for Solomon and for the kingdom. Now, Solomon had used resources from Hiram uh, to build both the temple and his own palace. And the author states that as part of that deal... Here it is. Hiram had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired. Now, uh, verse 14, a little bit later on, verse 14 clarifies that the amount of gold, in fact, was 120 talents. Now, we, we don't know the exact number that is, but it's most likely something like four tons of gold. Okay, so this alliance that he's had with this other king has been incredibly fruitful and, and successful for Solomon. So you've got to ask, could this be an early sign that the kingdom building is going well and it's going according to God's standard and thus God is blessing him as a result? Well, then after that, we get details about the labor force that Solomon used when he's doing this building. Okay, this is verses 15 to 21. Now, this force is of such a size that it reveals that Solomon is able to wield great power, not just over his own kingdom, but even beyond his kingdom. Now, without getting into all the details there, it's revealed that Solomon is able to conscript foreigners to do the heavy lifting in his building projects. While Israelites, they're involved as well, but they work as key leaders among his workforce, either as officials or commanders or or captains. Okay, so he's looking after his people and he's able to rope others in to do some of the work as well. And so because of this enormous workforce, well, Solomon has the power to uh, shore up some of the key defensive positions in the kingdom. Okay, he's able to uh, fix the, the walls of Jerusalem, that key city, And then other key cities like Hazor and Megiddo and Giza. Now, these are cities that guarded against the northern kingdoms. Okay, so he's able to shore up these defensive positions. Now, in fact, as you read it, it seems he had so much power and influence that as the text suggests, he could flat out build whatever he wanted. Let's have a look at verse 9. It says, he could build whatever... Solomon, whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. 
He's even able to build a separate house for his wife in verse 24. And then in verse 26, we discover he's got a fleet of ships now that he uses to bring in even more resources, uh, even more gold from faraway locations. And all along the way, we also discover all along this time, Solomon is obediently bringing sacrifices to God, according to verse 25. Okay, so the, the kingdom building, it seems, is going very well for Solomon at this early stage after God's conditional promise. It looks like that that blessing from God is already in effect. But, it's always a but, when you have a closer look, what happens? Well, as we have a closer look at the building project, some blemishes start to appear. So that that deal that we just mentioned with Hiram, the foreign king, well, Hiram gets something out of it on his end as well. In fact, the text tells us, Hiram gets out of it some 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Solomon gives them to him. He says, here you go, here's 20 cities for you. Now, if you read the story a bit more, Hiram, as it turns out, isn't too pleased with this. He doesn't think they're that great. But that's not the problem. Now, the problem there is Solomon, it seems, is happy to give away part of the promised land, part of the kingdom to a foreigner. Now, sure, they're in alliance with each other. They're helping one another out. But this is the land that God specifically gave to his people. It's God's land to give, not Solomon's. And yet here he is, here's the king of God's kingdom, giving away God's land. That's enough to warrant some blue tape. Now some of Solomon's building projects also raise questions for us. So in verse 21, we're told that the foreigners that Solomon used to do the heavy lifting, we're told that these are all people whom, quote, the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction. Now, if you remember, if you remember that part of the the Bible story, that was a key requirement that God placed on his people for when they entered the land. They were not to have anyone else living in the land with them But yet here they are, generations after that time, and there are still others living there with them. And it's not like they they couldn't do what God requires, because earlier in the the piece we read how Pharaoh was able to uh, destroy one of the cities that now Israel has, the city of Giza. Pharaoh was able to destroy it, but for some reason Israel wasn't. Why? Again, that seems worthy of some blue tape, doesn't it? And it looks even worse when you keep going because you realise that Solomon, despite his uh, regular faithful offerings that he makes to the Lord, well, he's clearly failed to obey some of God's commands. For example, the command not to intermarry with foreigners. Okay, what he has married, that his wife is the princess of Egypt. Now, That might have made for a really uh, clever military uh, alliance, but it goes directly against what God had laid out for his people. He said the people are not to intermarry 
And he, Solomon, as the king, he's meant to uh, be setting the, not just setting the example, but enforcing that rule. How can he do that if he himself is breaking it? It puts his, uh, that's, that's what's mentioned right before the line about offerings. It puts the, the thing about his offerings in a totally different light. Again, more blue tape required. And finally, well, we start to see some of the excesses of Solomon's kingdom. And I say Solomon's kingdom deliberately here, because according to the text, it's Solomon who desires these things. Now, we saw it first with the arrangement with Hiram, with the king of Tyre. Okay, He got cedars and wood and cypress timber from Hiram. Solomon got it. But what else? Well, let me quote from verse 11. It says, he also got... Gold, and look at how it's phrased, as much as he desired. Now Solomon clearly desired a lot of gold because he starts with four tons of it in verse 14 and by the time we get to verse 28, he has 14 tons of it. From four tons to 14 tons. The amount of gold is growing exponentially. And remember, he's finished building the temple and his palace by this point. So why why does he need so much? And then on top of that, there's the cities that he's building. Okay, as well as those uh, key defensive cities, he's also building storage cities. Let's have a look at verse 19. It says, and, and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen. Can you imagine building a city just for a part of your army? Just for to store uh, tools that your army uses. Now notice how it's phrased. It's his cities, his chariots, his horsemen. And before you think, ah, Josh, you're just being pedantic. God had said something specific about this very thing to his people. Okay, way back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is before the, the people entered the promised land. Well, God had given instructions for any future kings that might come for Israel. And part of those instructions were that they were not to collect excessive amounts of gold or chariots or horses. The very things that Solomon has decided he wants to collect en masse. So as we, as we start to get a sense of the passage as a whole, we're starting to see that blue tape appearing everywhere. It's enough to make you think that if this is what's happening right after God gives his conditional promise, well then likely, if it's already going bad, perhaps it's only just going to get worse from here. Actually, Solomon himself might have even hinted at this in his prayer from last week. Okay, in chapter 8, verse 46, as he's praying, he says to God, if they, that is, if his people, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, he's expecting, even in his prayer of dedication for the temple, he's expecting that they will sin. Expecting that the people, and surely he himself, would fail to obey God in the future. He knew it would happen. And in the very next chapter, that's exactly what we see taking place. Right? That the building project that he's undertaking 
has started to get cracks in the foundation. But what can we learn from all this as we draw some threads together? First thing I think we should say is that obedience to God is an ever-present calling. And one of the uh, repeated lines you always hear from investment companies uh, is past performance is no indication or guarantee of future returns. If you heard a line like that talking about investment, it doesn't matter how well the market might have performed in the past, it could always go either way into the future. And it's the same for us as Christians when it comes to obeying God. The fact that we might have been obedient yesterday, like Solomon was before chapter 9, well, that's no guarantee that we'll continue to be obedient, always obedient today or tomorrow. Obedience is something we're called to do in the present. In every moment of life, the call to obey God lies right before us. When we get up in the morning when we go to work, when we spend time with our friends, when we browse the internet, when we speak to our children, when we make promises to one another. In every moment of life, God gives us opportunities to either obey him or to disobey him. And being obedient in that choice yesterday does not mean that I'll automatically be obedient again today. And so that means for us, if we are Christians, it means that there's never a time that we can coast as believers. There's there's no such thing as Christian cruise control. Rather, it's an ever-present battle to stay obedient to God each and every day. Now, the Apostle Paul actually describes this battle in a place like Romans chapter 7. He talks about how He wants to do the right thing, but instead he finds himself doing the wrong thing. Now, this is a constant kind of experience for him. I'm sure uh, you felt that way at times as well. It's why I think he also writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're to take up the whole armour of God. Because life as a Christian is uh, means being part of a lifelong spiritual battle. It requires from us active Obedience, active choices to choose to obey God rather than to disobey him. Now, none of this means, I should say, none of this means that God isn't sovereign over our salvation. He is. He, He always upholds his end of the promise to save. But the very fact that he also gives conditional promises like this one means that we have the regular choice either to obey him or to disobey him. In Philippians uh, chapter 2, we're instructed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean we're to, to work for our salvation, to earn our salvation, but it does mean that we are to put it into practice. We're to put it into practice through the moment by moment choices that we make, either to obey God or to disobey him. And this passage is telling us we cannot rely on what we did yesterday to automatically ensure we'll do it again today. But we also can't rely on our external uh, successes or our external flourishing either. 
Let's go back to Solomon for a second. What was he likely thinking as he was carrying out this huge building project? I suspect that he was probably thinking, like we did initially, that everything's going really swimmingly. Everything's going really well. And, and potentially, as a result of that, he may have thought that that must be the case because he was being obedient. Uh, that's, that's the God had promised blessing for obedience. So as things start to go well, he could have gone, oh, it's because I'm doing the right thing. God's blessing us. But actually, as we took that closer look at things, we saw it was clear that there was more actually going wrong than going right with this building project from Solomon. And so that tells us that even when things look successful on the outside, even though it might look like we are flourishing, that doesn't necessarily mean it's because we're being obedient to God. God does promise to bless those who obey him, but he does, it's not an automatic guarantee that if we are, are doing well, we have been obedient. It doesn't work the other way, so to speak. I think this is something we can be particularly susceptible to in our modern world, right? Because we have, we have uh, all the things that we need and far, far more today, don't we? We have uh, better lifestyles. We have higher incomes. We have better education. We have more spacious homes than we've ever had at any point in history. I think we're being told here we're not to fool ourselves into thinking that that must be because we're being obedient to God. No, our our past obedience doesn't guarantee present obedience and our external circumstances don't mean automatically that I have been obedient. We need to keep every day making the choice to obey God or to disobey him. But that leaves us, I think, with with a final thing to say. Uh, even with the best of intentions, even with the, the strongest commitment to obedience, we are still hopelessly outmatched. Now, if you keep following the story of Israel, the rest of the story confirms that for us. Okay, right now, here in Kings, the, the kingdom looks so shiny and successful. But how does it end up? It ends up crumbling. See, when you look at God's conditional promise, it seems the promise of the curse that God outlines, that's the one that we see happening. The people of Israel are cut off from the promised land, just as God promised. The magnificent temple that was built so well by Solomon does end up in a heap of ruins, just as God promised. Why? Because They followed other gods, like wealth and pleasure for Solomon. And they did that in direct disobedience to what God had commanded. And it's no different for us today. No matter how much we might strive to be obedient, no matter how much we might work to earn God's favour, we are hopelessly outmatched. We end up pursuing instead our own Gods, gods of our own making, like career or family or success or sexual pleasure or autonomy. Our sinfulness is simply too great. 
And so what we end up with, with is cracks in the foundation of our lives and blue tape all over the efforts at building what God requires. And the end result is, of course, that we face the curse that God has promised rather than the blessing. Hey, that's what we deserve. And it's exactly that reason that makes Jesus so amazing. Why? Because God sent Jesus to be the cornerstone. Now let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. This is starting at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's this saying? It says Jesus is the cornerstone, the, the foundation, the key part of the building that is God's kingdom. And because he is, he's the, the cornerstone, the foundation that does not break. He's the, the cornerstone that needs no blue tape. And yet all the blue tape that's placed on our lives, rightly so, for our efforts, well, if we trust in Jesus, that blue tape of ours, those blemishes, that sin, instead gets placed on him in his death on the cross. And as a result, Jesus gets God's curse and we get God's blessing. The one meant for all those who are obedient to God that we haven't done, well, we get that anyway through Jesus. Because he was perfectly obedient. Unlike Solomon, unlike us, he did everything that God required. He kept God's promise, God's arrangement perfectly. And because of that, we can be brought into the kingdom that he is building we can enjoy the blessing of a place in God's eternal kingdom. One that we haven't earned, but one that Jesus has earned for us. And so that means I can be certain. No matter as I look around at my life, no matter how much kind of spiritual blue tape I might see, I can be certain that in Jesus... I have the security of an eternal foundation, an eternal cornerstone that will not break, that will not crack, no matter how disobedient I might be at times. Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. His is the kingdom that will last. He is the one to build your life upon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is a joy to see through the unfolding of the Bible story how the promises that you gave to your people are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. How though we are so sinful, 
though we are so uh, are so dreadful at keeping your promises, Jesus has come and kept them perfectly so that if we place our trust in him, we receive the blessing that otherwise we don't deserve. Father, would you give us confidence to place our hope in him, to build our lives upon him, to, to ask him for help as we strive to be obedient each and every day, as we make choices to obey you rather than to disobey you. Help us with this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.